0: This week on Dig Me Out Meow. It's stained us. Here we are now. It'll taint us. I feel stupid. Accutageous. Here we are now. It'll taint us. Well, the last time it was dangerous. Here we are now. It'll us.
1: With your host Jason Ziak. And Tim
2: Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, speaking of the union, we have a new union member joining us. Joel Taylor has come aboard. Welcome, Joel. I see the little A in front of your dollar sign, which means Australia? Austria? Maybe an Austrian. I'm not sure what the A stands for. Are there other A's? Auckland. 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 (laughs) Auckland, Is that a country? Arizona. No. Stop. Not yet. Once the power grid fails, then it'll become its own country. Uh, But welcome, Joel Taylor. Make sure to hop in on the uh, Discord channel and uh, join all the fun where we talk about UFOs uh, and music. Jay... uh, Pushing the ufo conspiracy theories
0: no conspiracy just facts man
2: okay sure sure and uh for this episode jay it was a patron selected round table we like to do these every month for this episode there was a it was a three horse a three horse race for this festivals in the 90s dig in your scene and wild card Sometimes wildcard pulls far ahead and people have some really good ideas, but this would it was last, 9% of the vote. Digging Your Scene was 27% and Festivals of the 90s was 64%. So we went with the suggestion, 30th year anniversary, Jay, Lollapalooza. number of people mentioned it. We're going with it. So let's talk Lollapalooza, Jay. Did you go? I didn't. I did not go, no. Okay, the show's over. <laughs>
0: I I I I'm not a big festival person like I'm not I just want to go to the show see the see the opener see the headliner and then right. go home I don't want to spend like my entire life there
2: Right, I'm I'm almost 47 now, Jay. I was a 47 year old man when yeah. I was 22. Yeah, me too. So I was like, well, I gotta find parking. You gotta park right. so far away, and then <laughs> look at the schedule. How am I gonna see all the bands I wanna see? It's gonna be hot. I'm gonna have to buy water. Can I bring my own water? Am I allowed to bring like food in? Because the prices are gonna be ridiculous. Right. And where do I sit down? Because I just want to sit down for a little while. And, and, so I, and don't, I didn't. And, go.
0: D- and don't pretend yeah. the, the the porta situation
2: didn't pass your mind. Oh, please. <laughs> I'll bring my own porta potty Thank you very much. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're way too uptight for
2: festivals. I'm not on anxiety meds for nothing. So, Jay, let's talk to some folks who uh, did go and probably enjoyed themselves. Probably will put all of our fears to rest and tell us about the wonderful times that they had in multiple years that they went. All returning champions to the show. Uh, Let's welcome back in the top left corner of my screen, Chip Midnight. Welcome back, Chip. Glad to be back. What years did you go? Rattle them off. 91,
3: 92, 93, and 94, and 2011. Nice. I think 2011.
2: Okay. In the middle square, joining us from up north, Mr. Johnny Hooper, how are you?
4: Oh, Canada. (laughs) Thank you and yourself
2: uh great and what years did you go tell the audience
4: 92 94 95 hello
2: hello i like these multiple years gives us lots of perspective finally joining us in the bottom square i wish we had six because then it would make sense but this is i'm sure this doesn't look the same for all of you like the way it does for me uh jim kopany welcome back uh years that you went sir I went '91 through '95, took a
1: couple of years off, and then I've been to everyone since 2005. So I've got a pretty broad view of Lollapalooza over the years.
2: That was a, that's a lot of festivals. <laughs> that's a lot of porta porta potty usage. How do you do it? Do you bring special wipes? What's the <laughs> what's the uh, what's the program for that? Um,
1: as the years have gone on and my access has grown, uh, porta potties and wipes are a little less on the agenda, but it's given me a great. Um, insight into how it's developed since it's early early days which is what we're here to talk about
2: yeah you know it's interesting I, I've, I've been looking at the uh the festival lineups because when it started in 91 I was still in high school and I there was no way that I was going to it then I was the most I had been to was a Billy Joel show with my dad so I wasn't going to Lollapalooza with some people at uh at high school uh but I was looking back at the um the various lineups and the actually the first lineup was kind of small. I I was thinking that it was like, you know, 40, 50 bands, but it was really just this sort of like extended concert (laughs) with regards to, um, the number of, of artists that were listed on it. So for you guys that went in 91, um, what was that like? Because, uh, I guess, uh, you know, for the, I guess would be Blossom for you, Chip, uh, you mentioned. um, Give us some insight. What, you know, what were you going in? What were you expecting? What what had you heard even going into it? Yep. So
3: you got to think there weren't a ton of festivals. I think, you know, there was festivals in the 70s, Us Festival in the 80s. But uh, like for our generation, I think uh, this was was the thing that really kicked it off. The the only festival I had been to before was the Monsters of Rock a couple of years earlier mm-hmm. um, at the Akron Rubber Bowl. So like I understood, you know, hanging out in a stadium all day and watching a bunch of metal bands, which was awesome at the time. Um, 91, I honestly think that I went to Lollapalooza because I like Jane's Addiction. And that might've been the, the thing that hooked me. And I think I had some friends that were going, um, you know, it sounded like a cool day of, of all day music. Um, but, you know, I mean, I had seen shows of Blossom, so it wasn't, uh, it, it was. It, it didn't seem crazy other than it was to to whatever you said earlier, it wasn't just like an opening band and a headliner, like it was six, seven, eight bands all day. So you just had to get there earlier um, and pace yourself throughout the day, which as a 21, 20, 21 year old, um, pacing yourself was probably pretty difficult for me back in the days, Um <laughs> And yeah, that that's my my biggest memory of of that show. Actually, is um, completely chilling out on the lawn after a full day uh, watching Susie and the Banshees and just laying on a on a blanket with some friends because I think we had we had uh, done our fair share of, of partying all day. But it was you know, like I said, I was I was I I love Jane's Addiction, but that was still in that weird spot right between the end of hair metal, the beginning of alternative music. So um, I wasn't. I wasn't that familiar with all the bands on the lineup, uh, so it was a good chance to learn about some new bands.
1: Yeah, to kind of build on Chip's point, we've gone through the '80s, seeing stuff like Last and Berry and reading, and been like, "Hey, so you can actually have a music festival that's got bands I want to see," as opposed to the the short jaunts, something like Monsters of Rock, that was so genre specific. And in 1991, I don't know if it's possible to really convey the feeling of we finally won, or we're finally on top, and our bands finally have something that's worth congregating around. And even though 91 was in Tinley Park here, which nowadays seems like a much smaller area to me, I remember going and just feeling like I was surrounded by music, and it was a massive expanse, and I was finally surrounded by thousands of people that were just, you know, not just like me, but that had been sort of felt like outcasts for a really long time, and it was very odd to be in a place where everybody likes the same weird music you do. and that, I, I think Lollapalooza sustained that ethos for a couple of years. So it was, that's kind of how it felt going into it, I think.
3: It's sort of funny though. You say everybody likes the same weird, weird music that you do, but, but it, it definitely was, I mean, there were, there was a huge diversity, at least in 1991. I mean, it was before like really alternative radio. Right. And so to have Susan and the Banshees and Nine Inch Nails and, um, I got to look at the lineup cause I can't remember. I'm too old. Uh, well, I don't color, know if you remember,
1: butthole surfers count, early in the yeah. day, and butthole surfers would like shoot a blank shotgun, of blank shells halfway through their set. And you'd walk into the amphitheater being like, "What is happening? This is so <laughs> strange."
3: And and to put it into perspective, 1991, 30 years ago, right? Um, like Nine Inch Nails was early. They, they played during the daytime. Like they were early, early.
0: Yeah, I think that that's what hit me as I looked at this the main stage bands. I mean, Gene's addiction, I guess, had. They're like an album band and they have a good catalog and they can go out and, you know, do, um, I mean, what do they tour now? Like they don't do arenas. They do like. They do 5,000 seaters. Right. So if they're the main headliner and then you've just got a lot of bands that like had either been around for a while, but not any huge hits. I mean, there's not like a major band headlining this at least for that first year. I, I think the Jim's point, like,
3: it was all, you know, at, at the time, 91, all the weird music, all the weird bands. But those bands, I don't know that they all crossed the same audience. Like, I don't know that Susan the Banshee fans were Jane's Addiction fans, were Nine mm-hmm. Dance fans, were uh, Ice-T fans. So yep. you got all these all these groups that could sell out, like, or not sell out, could play 500,000, 2,000 seaters together
0: and then bring together 8,000, yeah. 8, 10,000 people. Yeah, it's like you go through those headliners like okay, 5,000 people, 5,000 people, 3,000 people. It's like you literally just add all that up and you're like, okay, we can fill in Blossom. We can put in 20,000 or 18,000 people and do it. It's venue. also
1: important to remember that the first Lollapalooza was really thought of as like the farewell tour for Jane's Addiction, so even the booking was done very much from a let's, you know, Perry Farrell being like, let's book the bands I like and I want to tour with and that I know people will enjoy. So you got a, a weirdly diverse lineup that that gelled because there was that singular creative vision behind it.
2: The other bands uh, that didn't get mentioned that were on it were Rollins Band, Violent Femmes, and Fishbone. So it's definitely a, a diverse se- you know list of bands in terms of sounds. And none of them, you know, Naish had not broken through on a mainstream level. They were still kind of underground at that point living color had one big single at that point uh Rollins band didn't have their big single yet uh Violent Femmes were still really kind of a college band at that point college radio band they weren't I I don't I think they accumulated enough singles to get some recognition in the sort of mid-90s but and then Butthole Servers that's that's far before Pepper right so yeah, I mean, this is it's an interesting lineup because there's no, you know, who who's the natural opener for Jane's Addiction? Probably none of them, maybe Nine Inch Nails, but they're even not not at that point. And uh, it's its an odd collection, but somehow makes perfect, perfect sense for that time period. Um, so Chip,
1: I don't know. I don't know how it was by you when Nine Inch Nails played, but that definitely felt like one of their breakout tours because. In Tinley Park, like people lit garbage cans on fire and started huge tribal dance bits. and it wasn't it wasn't anger and it wasn't chaotic, but it was it was like everybody just dancing and having a really good time. And Nine Inch Nails, you know, probably them, Living Color, and Jane's Addiction were the three that like really popped on that person, at least in Chicago when they played, where everybody was kind of like, "Whoa!"
3: Was it was that park? Was it um was it seated and then a lawn, or was it all yeah
1: like, yeah it's yeah. the same like small pavilion up front and then a big lawn in the back
3: because that 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 is one thing i remember too is that as soon as nine inch nails came on every kid rushed down into the seated area like i mean security i think i posted about this somewhere recently i think i uh, somebody asked about something on twitter and like i just remember i see like the entire lawn rushed the stage and like security for about 3 seconds held up their hands and tried to stop people and it was it was mayhem but but to your point like they didn't go down and like pull chairs out and and destroy the place it was they wanted to be close to
0: the stage and looking at the, those main stagers, that was the band that was really ascending right at that time, right? I mean, James was kind of like fizzling out. Living Color was, like, they had their hit. It was like, not sure where that band was going. Susie and the Banshees had been around a while, but Nine Inch Nails, you're like, okay, that was when they were really like climbing the mountain and yeah. like taking off like a rocket.
3: And I'm sure we'll get to this. In 92, there was there was a similar band.
2: <laughs> right. What was the, you know, one of the things that made the Palooza unique was sort of the midway. Um, from what we heard, there was like interesting things happening. Uh, maybe it was later when it got bigger, but what was the atmosphere and what was going on around the concerts in that first year?
3: I don't remember there being much of midway, but again, that was like the first sort of festival. And I think I was getting my bearings straight. I came out of the metal hair metal stuff. Um, now that I'm thinking about it i I know who I went with. I went with like this group of people that i that were a couple of years younger than me that I had gone to high school with, and I had a huge crush on this one girl and that's so that's why I went and she was a huge Susie and the banshees fan, and I knew like I knew nothing about them. so I think i went I definitely went to see Jane's addiction, probably living color and I like nine inch nailed, but it was as much to go hang out with people. um so I don't remember there being a midway i think ninety two is when I remember when I remember. What okay. We'll talk about i'm sure yeah in
1: 91 it was a lot of body piercing jewelry um t-shirts some socially like socially active booths they were very early into kind of trying to get that across but yeah it wasn't until 92 when the jim rose side circus joined the midway that i think that the area outside of the the main stage and the side stage really blew up and became a place where people congregated
2: gotcha do you remember, do you remember I, what the tickets cost oh god i don't um probably something report-
1: outrageously expensive like twenty nine dollars with six (laughs) dollar service fees or something and we were like you know weeks and weeks of expendable income
3: (laughs) jim do you remember like i don't i i don't know what the blossom show if there was a second stage like i don't remember there being a second stage in blossom there could have been but i don't know that
1: oh you know what there might not have been a side stage it might have just all been it was 30 years ago i think it was just all kind of like you know the social activist booths and the like I said, the piercing and body jewelry and t-shirt booth. So maybe they didn't even start the side stage until the next year.
2: Yeah, yeah. according to the Wikipedia, the, there was a side stage only for one show at Shoreline Amphitheater, um, which was in Mountain View, California. But otherwise, it was just main stage.
3: And I'm not sure, I, I don't remember, and again, 30 years ago, who knows, but I don't remember the Violent Femmes or Fishbone being on the Blossom date.
2: Okay, maybe they rotated people in and out. They don't list it as, you know, how many shows that they play. It just lists who were all the main stage folks. Um, let's get it. You've started, you know, talking about 92. That's the year where I think it kind of blows up based on the amount of bands that are listed um, and playing. And then you mentioned the, the addition of the Jim Rose uh, Circus. Now, Johnny, this is the year that you first go, right? You got it. Tell us, Tell us your experience coming down from from uh you know very uh you know cold climate uh you come into the heat of uh where'd you go to see it
4: uh in barry's molson park just about 45 minutes north of toronto
2: oh okay yeah so they they made it up to canada for well i guess they did the first year they went to toronto yep uh so what was your experience like going to that uh 92 uh Tour. It
4: was phenomenal, actually. It was uh, a fairly slick, uh, well-run production. Far like I remember seeing, like, kind of we had a great uh, new music, alternative music show called the New Music here in in uh, Canada, and I remember them doing reports from that very first Lollapalooza, and it looked like a very DIY, you know, something that had just been thrown together, and and it was very, quote unquote, alternative. But by the time I get there the next year, it looks like a very well-run production. Like the, everything is is very well orchestrated. We uh, must've been a good 25,000 people there. Uh, again, you had a very, like you, like you said, you had kind of like a midway kind of atmosphere outside the the main amphitheater setting. And I really thought all the performances that year were just stellar i just my memories of it are, are really quite vivid and and uh and happy of that whole experience
2: did you get any merch
4: i got some merch i got uh jesus and mary chain t-shirt Soundgarden t-shirt uh it's all about t-shirts god damn it
0: <laughs> <laughs> what was uh were there any bands that uh maybe you hadn't heard of before that impressed you
4: no, I mean, I knew everybody, but what blew me away was seeing them. Lush, I was not prepared for lush to be that great live. Uh, ministry was a real mind blow. I don't I'm not sure anybody was quite ready for ministry that year. Uh, I think they really kind of set the place on fire. and uh, and Jesus and Mary Jane, they had a kind of a spotty, kind of live uh, reputation through the years, and I thought they really, from at least our show, I thought they really came. Uh, they really came to play. So, you, I don't have to tell you about Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and all the rest of it. But I really thought those particular bands were the ones that kind of that those memories stayed with me the, the most.
3: Tim, I think you probably need to. Jim, you're out. on mute.
1: Sorry about that. I was going to say, in Chicago, Ministry had a similar reaction to Nine Inch Nails. Only it felt kind of funny because it, it felt like Al was kind of reclaiming the title from the from the young upstarts from the year before. And it was, but it was a very similar vibe, and
4: it was a very energetic show here too. Like they were, they were mind blowing. They were at the height of their powers. And, it's funny and, too because did you see that Nine Inch Nails has just been? Uh, they just put a tweet out about they're playing Hellfest in France next year. And you, did you see that lineup they put together? Skinny Puppy, Ministry, like it, it, it's just like this industrial who's who. And uh, I just thought it was so funny. Like you talk about full circle, you know.
3: And and uh, Tim, I don't know if you were going to run through the lineup. I think the band that none of us have talked about is the Chili Peppers headlined.
2: Right. And this is so, right when Blood Sugar Sex Magic drops, right?
3: Yeah. So you got to think like between ninety one and ninety two. Um, It was a Jay that said, you know, uh, Jane's Addiction was sort of using this as their sort of farewell tour. Mm. And then we, you know, I was on the podcast when we did the 1991, right? We talked about albums Mm in 91. And um, so, you know, Lollapalooza happens summer of 91, fall of 91, all these big albums come out. So by 92, it became like this alternative music festival, like capital letters, alternative music festival, right? Where it it went from being, um, like Johnny was saying, sort of the DIY kind of Jane's Addiction's Last Stand to now like the festival with all the bands that were blowing up. I mean, you know, if Nine Inch Nails was a band that kind of broke the first year, Pearl Jam, same thing. Pearl Jam played early. They played before Soundgarden and Chili Peppers and um, a couple other bands, I think. And uh, same, th- same thing, the whole lawn rushed rushed down to, to get up front for Pearl Jam.
4: And, and have, they, asked, it, they, they asked, asked to play early. They wanted to play early and watch everybody else the rest of the
1: oh, day. Yeah. yeah. Because that was that was just following the big tour with Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Smashing Pumpkins. So they had already started to completely blow up and Eddie Vetter was already starting to, and I'm sure we'll get to the whole Jim Rose sideshow of it all. <laughs> yeah. Like this was very much the the Eddie Vetter becoming the man of the people and the, the voice of the disaffected. Like mm-hmm. this was the year.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: so it um you know we talked about this in the 91 episode but if i can kind of i i pulled out a, a student paper that i wrote for and i wrote you know a review of that show but as i was looking as i was flipping the paper just to kind of put where my head was at the back cover the back page of the paper is um talking about going to see ronnie james dio and i interviewed uh, lynch mob so like i was still in that so <laughs> to what johnny said it's i'm reading through my review and i'm like like oh i didn't i didn't there in time to see lush oh too bad i'm so sad about that one and then same thing with jesus and mary chain like i went searching for beer during jesus and mary chain because i didn't know who they were and like i i apparently had no interest in seeing them at the time so sarcastically like oh too bad the beer line was an hour long so i had to miss all that set
2: i mean i didn't know who jesus and mary chain were in 1992 i was not hip to the what was going on in the uk i do want to run through this lineup because this is a pretty amazing lineup for 92 you know this these dates are july mid-july to mid-september in 92 so on the main stage you got red hot chili peppers ministry ice cube sound garden the jesus and mary chain pearl jam and lush the side stage is pretty incredible raids against the machine tool stone temple pilots cypress hill house of pain the Jim Rose circus sideshow Porner for pyros. It's interesting. This is Perry Farrell's tour and he put himself on the side stage. Um, Seaweed seam luscious Jackson cafe to Cuba. Um, temple of the dog. I'm guessing because Soundgarden and Pearl jam were on this tour that they just decided to do temple of the dog shows on the side stage for fun. Um, and then you have Booyah tribe. Uh, Sweaty nipples? I'm not familiar with sweaty nipples. anybody know sweaty nipples? I have them. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Basshead, uh, the Vulgar Boatman, Screw Tribe, The Authority, Samba Hell, Groovement, Gary Heffron, and even Crawl. Trenpoompoopot, whatever. Shrunken Head. Sometimes we there's some there's some names on here that didn't they didn't last. I, I, uh, I'm not going to go through them all. The Bottle I Rockets think- played uh, interesting they were on it but a, a lot of more bands i think maybe some of them switched on and off at different points yeah, yeah
3: I, I don't remember a side stage on the second year for me either but it could have been the venue or it could have been that i didn't know that there was a second stage to go check things out at mm. but i don't I don't yeah. remember i don't remember there being a side second side second stage at blossom
2: okay it was
4: there but you kind of you almost kind of ran into it by accident it wasn't well whatever publicized or whatever what have you
2: I mean, 92, you know, did Rage Against the Machine have an album out yet when this yeah. toured?
1: Yeah, but they would have only, I'm pretty sure most of those sideshow acts were playing just a couple select dates here and there because right. gotcha. that's that's the one thing about Lollapalooza is the sideshows of the early years. And I don't know how Johnny and Chip feel about this, but it all kinds of, kind of turns into a slurry because so many of the bands on the side stages were such unknowns at the time that on the rare time you went over there to see somebody who was kind of up and coming, it it, it was just a very odd area. So it's kind of hard to remember who you did see. Like you do remember gotcha. seeing Eddie Vedder drink bile at the Jim Rose Sideshow, but I might not remember whether, you know, what uh, would well, Troponum Pie played uh, my date?
2: <laughs> um, can you go into a little bit more of the bile drinking by Eddie Vedder? Cause I'm not quite sure what you're talking about.
1: Um, I could tell the story of Chip. I don't, did you, did either Johnny or Chip, um, witness that at yeah. beer stops? I've seen it on TV. I have not witnessed it in person. So one of the one of the one of the bits of the shtick that the Jim Road side showed did is they had one guy that could, you know, they pour beer and whatever into his stomach and then they pump it all back out. And somebody from the audience would volunteer to drink it and think, oh great but it got to the point where Eddie Vedder and I can't remember who he was up against. It was it was a Trent. Al oh, it was Al Jerkinson. Yeah. So they had a bet where they just started to like always jump up on stage and drink it. And they tried to see who could drink the most and the grossest. Yeah. And in <sighs> Chicago, I remember him like almost climbing over a wall to get to the stage. And we're all like, it was one of those things where you kind of expect it was going to happen, but it was always hilarious when it did. You're, and kind of gross. <laughs> the,
3: uh, the thing yeah. I, uh, I remember seeing that and in, in, at the Blossom show. Um, just for those listeners, Blossom is about an hour outside of Cleveland, so it's probably considered Cleveland a Cleveland show. But it it was not. It, it was forty five minutes hour away from Cleveland, so it was it was in the far suburbs. But the one thing I wrote about was um, was Lifto, and Lifto had nipple piercings and would go like just you know he would start off like maybe lifting something small like you know he'd clamp himself up and then kind of be crouching and then kind of stand up and it got to the point I think I wrote he uh, his talents included the ability to lift concrete blocks that were attached by a thick chain with his nipple rings Lifto makes Dolly Parton look flat Jim Rose squealed to the audience
4: (laughs) I think it's important at this point to to mention it was Mr. Lifto
3: Mr. yeah 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 you're right
2: (laughs) Well, that, Chip, come uh, on!
1: Thank you to my fact-checking because
2: <laughs> it just knocked off my goatee; it's gone. I was so <laughs> blown away by that. <laughs> he just
0: pulled the fake hair right off his face.
2: Uh, okay. Uh how did that work?
0: It was um, with? Did they have a like a a set like set? How did so the sideshow thing work with the rest so of the band's plan?
3: Yeah, where I saw them, they were in the in the midway area, so they weren't they weren't near the stage. Okay,
2: mm-hmm. that's right. Yes. So, so this, while you're getting your hot dog, you can watch a guy lift oh. stuff with his nipples.
4: <sighs> it, it was the it was the early days of uh, scheduling two stages at the same time.
2: Yeah,
4: <laughs> and they also had. Do you guys remember this? They had this large, um, I don't know what you want to call it, like an apparatus. And they had all sorts of metal objects and you could bang on. Anybody could come on and start banging on metal objects randomly. It was like a scene out of Mad Max, for Christ's
2: sake. It sounds very Burning Man. Yeah, I was going to say, is
0: that, is that the start of Burning Man? No doubt. <laughs> you know, the other thing about the Cleveland show is,
3: um, as I'm reading through this review I wrote, um, it started raining like pretty heavily, not for the whole day, but just like right before Pearl Jam went on and um and so one of these outdoor amphitheaters they're probably pretty typical everywhere right where it's a big grass you know grass lawn and then and then seats and um people were just like grabbing whatever they could and just sliding down so it became this giant and you know the rumor was that Eddie Vedder and, and Chris Cornell were out there doing it with people i i don't think anybody like i didn't see him um but uh but yeah there were definitely people sliding down tearing up the lawn just because of, of the rain and, and everything.
1: If there's one thing Lollapalooza's has always had, it's the mud people.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Also, that was at every festival in the nineties though.
4: At our show, Eddie Vedder climbed the scaffolding, traipsed all the way across the top of the scaffolding and came down the other side, like to look at it now, Uh, Insurance underwriters are shitting their shorts seeing that. (laughs)
2: Unbelievable!
0: When did that guy get so boring?
2: Wow! (laughs) When he became a dad.
0: Now now he just—I don't—I mean, probably for more than a decade, he just seems like a grumbly old man. Like, it's hard to even imagine he was like that.
1: Ticketmaster took a lot out of him.
2: (laughs) Apparently, yeah. Um. So for the. For the following year, 93, what's interesting is that uh, some of the bands that were on this, only maybe one or two shows for the side stage in 92 bumped up to the main stage for 93. That's Tool. They moved to the main stage. They only played two shows for the 92 uh, festival. Raids Against the Machine, uh, they went to the main stage in 93 along with Alice in Chains, Primus. Dinosaur Jr., Fishbone, Arrested Development, Front 242, and Babes in Toyland. And then the side stage had some interesting uh, bands, which we'll get to in a bit. But so Chip and Jim, you were the two that went to 93, right? Johnny, you didn't make 93.
4: No, I so- bowed out. You know, I bowed out with that one. I thought it was a bit of um, something just didn't sit right with me with this year. But I, now, of course, I wish I had gone.
2: <laughs> right
3: so it, it sort of became a little formulaic right you had the kind of the the rap you had the industrial band you had like the grunge band it, it seemed like every year like you could almost if the internet was around it would have been full of message board discussions like who's going to be next year slot out your lineup and you could have slotted in somebody at the end of my 92 article i said and again alternative was blowing up but even then headliners hadn't really become huge huge right so i said um Think of all the possibilities for next year. Nirvana, The Ramones, The Beastie Boys, Sonic Youth, Fishbone, Primus, Blind Melon, Allison Chains, L7, Dinosaur Jr. And, and, but those were the, like, of course, most of those bands ended up because they were the big bands. I, like, I don't think I was being a uh, psychic or anything and like picking out the obscure bands. Like those were the bands that seemed like they should be on those bills.
4: And Prime, right. it was like very controversial that Primus headline that year. Everybody was on a downer about it. And in retrospect, you
1: can start to, you can almost chart the course <laughs> against popular music at the time, because 91, again, kind of more of a peripheral, I pick the bands I want to see. 92, you know, all of a sudden, what was going to be a farewell concert turns into, was a hit. So, oh my God, we have to keep this going. So let's do another bill that's similar. And they still stayed inventive. I think by 93, you're starting to see they're trying to book bands that will draw people as opposed to booking the bands that they like because they're hoping to to bring that community together. And, that can, and, and you almost see a correction in that the following year. And then mm-hmm. the year after that, 95 or 96 and 97 is when they go directly into the, let's just let's just book whatever the radio is playing because we got to sell tickets. So I think what you're seeing here is is the beginning of that. Like they're starting to get commercial. The next year they're going to kind of correct for that. And they might have overcorrected. And then all of a sudden goes super commercial.
2: Well, but and also said, don't they start having competition? Because they had no competition to start with in terms of, Festivals, and then pe- pe- people go. Oh, we can do a festival tour, and then Warp Tour pops up, and Horde Tour, and mm-hmm. all these different options start coming up slowly but surely um, over the over the decade. So I'm sure that not only are they dealing with the fact that we have to consider what's popular, but also what's available if we're going against other festivals. Well,
1: that's the friction you're starting to see. Is you do have other festivals, but they're super genre specific still, right? Warp Tour is very much going after a specific demographic, whereas Lollapalooza ostensibly is supposed to be the let's 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 bring to the surface the underground music that we all love. And I think this is the year where you begin to realize that that is just a completely commercial <laughs> endeavor.
2: Well, the side stage is pretty interesting. Um, you have the Verve. I mean, this is 93. There's no, this isn't Urban Hibbs Verve. This is first album Verve. Uh, Sebado, Mercury Rev, Unrest, Cell, Scrawl from Columbus, um, Luscious Jackson, Truly, Girls Against Boys, Thurston Moore, the Carl Hendricks Trio. And again, these are not for every episode or not every episode, every show, but, you know, on various um, shows. Ethel Meat Plow um the swirlies archers of loaf so and then and there's catherine i mean we've done a lot of these drop 19 sleepyhead lamb chop red red meat lots of uh lots of bands that's and there's probably another 15 bands that I, I haven't mentioned yet um but there's a lot of interesting artists on that on those second stages that i honestly like yeah i would have liked to have seen alice in chains in 93 and and um, Tool and Rage Against the Machine, but those side stages bands are just as interesting to me now, at least as the as the main stage.
3: If and if I'm not wrong, I think Rage opened. They, really? Because um, I'm looking even in the lineup on Wikipedia, like they're listed kind of at the very last part. And like I remember, they definitely played during the day because I remember that was probably the closest I've ever been um, without alcohol to passing out at a show. Um, it was hot. It was in at um, Polaris Amphitheater, or I'm sorry, not Polaris. Um, um, uh, what was that place? Buckeye Lake, um, kind of on the outskirts of Columbus, uh, which which had no seats, so it was all general admission. And we were just so packed. And as soon as Rage hit, hit Rage hit the stage, it just became everybody was pogoing, just up and down. And like, I just remember having people on the side of me, essentially holding me up. Like it was hot. It was just, it was insane. Um so they definitely played like really early if not first. They definitely were were a very early afternoon band.
1: Yeah, I think you're right because it was it was odd to walk into like them in Tool and Babe's in Toyland early in the afternoon, but <laughs> it was a, it was a bit of a a bit of a, a wake-up jolt, some oral caffeine for the years. And didn't Allison Chains headline not Primus, right? If I'm remembering correctly. No, I Alice think Primus.
3: Primus headline. Huh. Yeah, you're right. I, that, they were counter. I totally forgot about that.
4: Yep. And I believe Rage went on. Uh, I don't know if it was the first couple of shows or maybe one show, but they went on buck naked with uh, duct tape over their mouths, and they were protesting against the insane t-shirt prices of Lollabalooza.
3: yeah. I think that was in Philadelphia, I think. But it's funny you mentioned that because, again, back in that 92 article, I I sarcastically said something like, um, all the bands had t shirts for sale, and you could buy a Lollaposa shirt for $23, which apparently for a college student, $23. I must have thought that was insane that you'd spend $23 on a t shirt.
2: Oh my God. The the prices are outrageous. I mean, (laughs) at the time. (laughs) Well, consider how much did you pay for parking lot t shirts in the 1980s when you would go to the Akron Rubber Bowl? Yeah, probably like.
3: 10 or 15 yeah i want maybe. to see the boot, bootlegs
0: 10. yeah the bootlegs were like 10 and then the red the real shirts were 19 or 20
3: all right i gotta take a slight diversion have i ever have i ever told you guys my um bootleg t-shirt story about uh, pink floyd
2: no hmm. tell so us. i saw
3: i saw them at cleveland stadium in 1987 i was 16 years old and i bought a a uh, bootleg shirt on the corner as i was walking out hand the guy cash two blocks later somebody walks up whips out a wallet and says, um, basically, I'm a cop. Uh, You just bought a bootleg shirt. You have to confiscate it or we'll arrest you. And so I handed it back to him and left. I'm pretty sure it was a scam. Like now that I'm an adult, I think they were doing that to anybody along the way. So they were taking your money for the shirt and then getting it back and taking it back to the guy selling them and just doing this loop thing. But I didn't think about that. It took me, like I said, about 20 years to figure out that it was probably a scam. Like why would they be busting me instead of busting the guy selling the shirt?
0: Right, right, right.
3: There you go, kids.
1: Is <laughs> that so the a momentary lapse of reason to her, Chip?
3: Yes. I had a momentary lapse of reason when turning over my t-shirt to a fake
0: cop. <laughs> next time That's a fake awesome. cop tries to take your bootleg t-shirt, just fly him the
2: bird <laughs> <laughs> and run. Much wiser next time. Uh, let's talk about 1994, because this is, I think you said, Jim, the discipline itself, really or the course correct a little bit. Um, and looking at this lineup, uh, I would have I would have been in love with this lineup. It was a so, fucking amazing lineup. I mean, well, <laughs> well, well,
0: before, you, before you get to the lineup, this is the year Nirvana is supposed to headline, correct? Yes. It year? Year, yeah. Okay.
2: Yep. This is the year.
0: So is this lineup you're about to go through? Did they have to, I don't remember if they had a scramble to find somebody to replace them. Like what was the timing on that? Because he dies in what, April?
2: Yeah.
4: No, it was already set. And then Pumpkins just moved up. That was it. So
0: they didn't fill fill Nirvana with yeah. anybody. Okay.
4: No, and there's video. I've I've stumbled across video of Kurt talking backstage uh, during the European leg of In Utero, and uh, some guys from uh, the Buzzcocks are in the room, and he's you can hear him very faintly. The audio is not great, but you can hear him discussing. Yeah, we're gonna play Lollapalooza this summer with the Smashing Pumpkins and the Beastie Boys and the Paraders. So that's really interesting just to kind of witness that happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What when was that?
4: That would have been probably February, late January, early February of 94.
2: Wow. And this is also the year uh, of Woodstock 94, the 25th anniversary of Woodstock. And it makes me wonder I I wonder if they pull that off in the same way. If this is not happening, if Lollapalooza is not happening. Like I wonder if Woodstock 94 looks completely different from a band perspective. If, if they actually get all these alternative bands to play Woodstock, or if they went with like old, old bands instead, if they, if there wasn't this alternative touring festival to go around. um, I think by
1: 1994 alternative, which is, Honestly, a, a a genre name I hate. It's just as descriptive as post-punk is <laughs> trying to talk about whatever it is that you're talking about. But '94 is is when everything was exploding. All the radio stations were becoming alternative radio stations. Like this was the this was the language of the land. I mean, MTV was all alternative. You, if you want, if you want, like the the peak moment of of the '90s when it comes to alternative rock and all that sort of thing, it's probably '94. It's that's right when we you're about to head into new metal and butt rock shortly afterwards.
3: <laughs> I mean, what Wood- Woodstock had, cause I went to that too. Um, green day, nine inch nails, blind melon, Cypress Hill bands that either had been, or could have been, or should have been part of Lollapalooza.
2: Well, green day I'm... and Cypress Hill skipped Lollapalooza dates. They were on Lollapalooza in order to play Woodstock. Oh, okay. Um, and for this, you mentioned, um, some of the artists. So the, the main stage was Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys, George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars, The Breeders, A Tribe Called Quest, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, L7, and then for the first half of the tour, it was The Boredoms, and the second half, it was Green Day. I mean, that right there, that's that's a pretty amazing collection of bands. On the side stage, you have The Return of the Verve, The Flaming Lips, The Boo Radleys, Guided by Voices, Girls Against Boys, Stereo Lab, Fushnickens, The Far Side, Shudder to Think, Luscious Jackson, Shonen Knife, uh, The Frogs for a couple dates, and then some bands: Roller Skate Skinny, Palace Songs, um, King Kong, Charlie Hunter Trio. There was also a, I guess there was a. Um, Is that the poetry stage here? Yeah, there was a poetry stage. Because I, I seem to remember, Maggie Step was playing. Maybe yes. Um, and Dr. Mad Vibe, Angelo Moore from Fishbone performed poetry, um, on the side stage or on the, the poetry stage. And there was also, it was called the Revival Tent. And, um, I guess the Flaming Lips played in there instead of actually on the side stage.
1: I don't think not, I don't think they play in the Revival Tent everywhere. Cause I know they play in the side stage in Chicago because they okay. were- well, into their oh, their that, in, sorry, they that were was in sorry, that was in So, I remember bubbles all over the, the the concrete parking lot that we were standing in watching them.
2: Gotcha. So, what are your uh, all three of you went this year? I know Chip, you said your uh, memories are not good of this year, but uh, Johnny and, and Jim, what are your memories of, of 94 with as you say, the return to form for the uh, festival?
4: Go ahead, Jim. Um,
1: I think you can see from the expansion of the side stage and everything there. This was the year that it really was all about trying to like unearth newer bands. Um, The Pumpkins. I I do remember one hilarious moment, though, and it kind of did give you an idea of the different crowds of people that were coming together. um, Watching George Clinton and the P-Punk All-Stars and some kids behind me going, oh, my God, I can't believe he's ripping off Snoop Dogg. And I'm like. I don't think you understand (laughs) what song from. (laughs) So there was still that kind of thing, but I definitely remember um, (laughs) the other funny thing is on the way to seeing the Flaming Lips, um, I had been telling a friend of mine who was volunteering to work a Greenpeace booth or something. Um, He was a big fan of the Smashing Pumpkins. And since they're from Chicago, I was like, oh, yeah, Billy's a nice guy. You know, I have run into a bunch. He's super chill, you know, go up and talk to him. Well, apparently this is the year that Billy Corgan stopped talking to fans. <laughs> so my, my friend, unfortunately, walked up to him and was like, hey, yeah, how are you doing? And Billy Corgan's just like, I, I go away, I don't talk, I don't do autographs, leave me alone. I'm like, I'm so sorry. So maybe 94 is also the year that, I I, I, I can't get out of my head, but it does feel like, a, like a, a turning point year, like for Lollapalooza in general and just kind of the whole music scene and everything that we liked at the time. Sorry, that's a bummer. <laughs> i had a really good time at the show it's just in retrospect you start to see um the narrative over time and you can you can see where where the festival is trying to regain and starting to lose its way
3: gotcha. i gotcha i feel like the reason that that i don't remember much of it is by by 93 alternative I mean, i'm sorry by 94 alternative was, was i think jim was you said 94 that was like the big year right in that I had probably seen the pumpkins already i had probably seen the breeders are like the first couple of years there were some bands that like i didn't i had never seen before and by 94 like it it was like for for the columbus folks it was like seeing like four bands that i'd already seen at the newport that year then playing outdoors and they were playing i don't know it, it probably had to do with the venue too. polaris amphitheater in columbus was Kind of just on the just on the edge of the suburbs. It didn't feel like Lollapalooza. It felt like a it, it felt like a corporate radio gig. Now, granted, George Clinton wouldn't be on a corporate radio gig, and the Boredoms wouldn't be on a corporate radio gig. But for the most part, to me, it just sort of felt it felt not alternative. It felt normal. If that makes sense, like so, it wasn't as memorable to me because be, like nothing there really blew my mind that that I can remember. But a lot of Rolling Rocks may have also been the other reason I can't remember a lot of that.
1: John, I don't know how it was in your market, but in Chicago, it was probably the first year where it felt like there was one band that dominated the bill because everybody wanted to see the Beastie Boys. That was like the yep. draw. So it, it was also odd and it felt like it was the first year where there was a single dominating band as opposed to, you know, two or three up at the top that felt like they were kind of vying for headliner status. This yes. was Beastie Boys was the reason people were there.
4: Yeah. I agree with that. You could definitely feel there was a, uh you're trying to get there in time for the BC boys. Yeah.
2: Interesting. So 95 is the last year that Perry Farrell is actually in charge of Lollapalooza. It's an interesting lineup. I don't think it gels very well. Looking back at it, it's the main stage is Sonic Youth, Hole, Cypress Hill, Pavement, Sinead O'Connor for a couple shows, and then she got pregnant and left. Um, then uh, she was replaced by Elastica and Moby for some shows. Beck, The Jesus Lizard, and The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. That was your main stage. And then on the side stage, you have Coolio, Possum Dixon, Poster Children, Yolatengo Brainiac, Geraldine Fibbers, Dam Builders, The Far Side, Tuscadero, Built to Spill, Helium, Redman, St. Johnny, Dirty Three, Mike Watt, Versus, Hum, Blonde Redhead, The Roots, The Zeros, Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Patty Smith, Moby, Back Playing Acoustic, Super Chunk, Spring Heel Jack, USA, and the Incredibly Strange Wrestling, Incredibly Strange Wrestling. I don't know what that is. Is that a band or was that like an activity no, I guess it was wrestling. It was a, it was a Lucha Luka Libre. Lucha Libre. Uh, and Dandelion. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. This This main stage does not like... If I was going to be going back after 94, I'd kind of be like, huh, that's interesting.
0: It, it, the strategy, though, looks closer to the first one, right? It looks like theater bands put together to create... You know, a bunch of five thousand draw bands put together to try to you know get twenty thousand people on a, a venue, right?
1: Yeah, I mean you're you're anchoring a, a lineup with basically pavement hole and sonic youth on the on the like guitar side. And yeah, I mean again Cypress Hill was a big draw, but I they were definitely kind of odd odd people out as far as the lineup was concerned because it was it did feel very um very Spin magazine for <laughs> ninety five. Mm. Right? That that's kind of like anybody that this was pavement. You know, just at their ascension. So there's all that sort of like that that indie underground energy, and Elastica brought some of that. And you know, Hole was at that time still a dangerous and kind of exciting band, and you know, hadn't completely imploded yet. So there was in, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. But I think you're right when you when you kind of surmise that it seems like a bit of a fractured build, one that doesn't really gel.
2: Yeah, Giant. Did you go to this one?
4: Yeah, I'm here at this
2: one. What were your impressions of this of this lineup?
4: You know, for me, it was a great afternoon. Uh, I'm still devastated that I'm I'm hearing the Jesus Lizard as I'm still stuck in a lineup trying to get inside the venue. That, that's a, a painful memory for me, but. Uh, <laughs> I was just very impressed with Beck and uh, Pavement. Whole really brought a lot of intensity that night. Um, you know, my feelings were, yeah, it's not a, it's not a, a lineup that really necessarily flows well together, but individually, the performances were all great, and I don't know, I I have a very good um, feeling looking back on that particular afternoon and evening. Yeah, the only downside for me was I think I fell asleep
1: halfway through a whole set and somebody stole my backpack, and at the time I had a, a bad big old Motorola brick phone, so I, I couldn't call anybody when it was time to pick me up. <laughs> but but I do remember the Sonic Youth stuff being um, very beautiful and lulling me back into a sense of complacency after the initial anxiety of losing my phone, <laughs> which also, who's losing a phone in 1995? That's just insane and dumb.
3: if <laughs> <laughs> if 2021 chip can try to remember and put himself in 1995 chips head i think 94 had been the pumpkins and beastie boys like like the true headliners the big bands i didn't go to 95 i again i had seen a lot of those bands but i think in my head at that point i was looking like what is the next like there didn't seem to be a headliner and by going back to the 91 lineup i sort of lost interest like I think I needed there and I don't know who would have been the ninety five headliner that would have blown me away and made me say that I would go, but um I, I had seen Sonic Youth Pavement. Um, um I'd seen back. I'd seen a lot of those bands and smaller clubs. And so by by the time it came around to them all together in the same bill, there wasn't a lot to to pull me in. So I didn't go to that year. I'm not even sure if it came to Columbus or not, to be honest.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. This might be the first year that I would have seen most of the bands in the in the main stage before going to the festival. You know, the other festivals, it was still I was still young enough that you didn't see bands unless they were on big bills. Like
4: they just didn't come through. Also, or, you know, the tickets were too expensive for we <laughs> teenagers. Sonic Youth is touring washing machine on this tour, and they wanted to be billed as washing machine. And they were forced into not doing that. <laughs> It was probably a good call.
2: That's the call. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, this is the last year for Perry Farrell's management of the sh- of the festival. In '96, you have, I guess, a company taking over. I don't know. I don't know who exactly takes over at that point. But this is the year of Metallica, Load Metallica, headlining. So
0: before you go on, though, should we read into what we just talked about with that 95 lineup and then Pharrell not being as involved in having a company
2: start to take over the booking? <laughs> well, he yeah, has, like, he does a new thing, right? Like, what is it? What was it called? Uh,
1: it started. Oh, God. What was the name? It started with an E. He was E-net? all about electronic music.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Connecting with the aliens.
0: Sur- surmising here again it, lo- it looks like he maybe tried to take it back To like the, the classic concept and it didn't work And decided to keep doing his own festival And then other folks came in and said Okay, we're going to sell tickets
2: Now we're going to make some money <laughs> Right <laughs> So this is when you get Metallica, Soundgarden The Ramones, Rancid, Screaming Trees Psychotica and the Shaolin Monks On the main stage um, The main stage on selected dates Had... Rage Against the Machine, Cocteau Twins, Waylon Jennings, Surprise Guest Act, Cheap Trick, Violent Femmes, The Tea Party, Wu-Tang Clan, Steve Earl, Devo, and 311. So those were just on selected dates.
0: <laughs> there are some oddballs in there, aren't there? See,
3: yeah. I kind of I, I want to go to that now.
2: <laughs> um, the side stage was the Beth Hart Band, Girls Against Boys, Ben Folds 5, Ruby... Corner Shop, UMI, Soul Coughing, Sponge, Melvin's, Satchel, Johnny Polanski, and Fireside. And then on the indie say indie stage was the Cows, Capsize 7, who we have covered on this podcast. <laughs> uh Moonshake 30 Ought six varnaline crumb and some other ones. That side stage really good, honestly. We've we've done episodes on almost every one of those bands. And like, there, there's
0: like there's some bands on the main stage that I'm I'm scratching my head at too, like Psychotica? Whoa, is, is that a band that I should know? It's um
1: no it does yeah. I mean, it's a was that it, a big deal?
3: Is that the guy Pat Briggs was a singer? Yeah, and Pat Briggs had been in an '80s hair metal band and then kind of became like this alien kind of guy, right? Like he he took on a persona and it. it
2: but a cellist, right? Uh, okay. I or think that. I remember now. You're like an industrial I mean, cellist when, band. When,
1: when, when, your Wikipedia, when your Wikipedia entry says that your your most notable accomplishment is being on the 1996 Lollapalooza bill, that's a pretty yeah. good sign that you don't have any notable accomplishments.
0: I, you, know, you, you just go through that, that line, you know, Metallica, okay, wow. Soundgarden, wow. The Ramones, wow. Rancid are huge at that time. Screaming trees, okay. And then Psychotica,
1: well, that's, that's also probably where you get to the point where, you know, they had something on the talent buyer and they just had to include them in the bill. There you
2: <laughs> go. Right, there you go. And,
3: yeah. and to Jim Jim's point about hating the, the term alternative, I mean, in 1995, Ben Folds was considered an alternative ban. Can you imagine Ben Folds five in the 1991 lineup? Like, that, that no. would have been, that would have been stupid, right? No. And by 95, <laughs> it was, it was. That's what alternative, quote unquote, alternative music had become. Like Ben Folds 5 fit on a Lollapalooza lineup, which seems really weird to me.
1: Well, that's that's also a good, that's kind of a good point, Chip, because I'm thinking about it and early Ben Folds 5, like that first album was very much viewed as an indie rock band because the whole idea of a guy playing a piano as a lead instrument, like a guitar was unusual at the time. And it was still, you know, had a lot of energy and, you know, as time goes on and his songwriting becomes more refined, he becomes, you know, rough edges get taken away and he becomes super safe for the people and appropriate for the law of audience.
0: He becomes Randy Newman. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: did you go to this one, Johnny 96? I absolutely
4: stayed far away from this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, and then 97. This, this goes, this one goes wild. This is definitely like, what is the new thing? It's Electronica. Oh, boy. That's the new yep. thing. So let's book Orbital. Let's book to, uh, the Orb. Orbital and the Orb. Get real confusing. Let's get Tricky. These are the main stage artists. Let's get the Prodigy. I mean, this is an oh, electronic.
1: But don't, forget to, don't forget to bring in Devo for the old school electronic
2: beats. Right. Along with Snoop Dogg, Tool, and then, uh, and uh, Julian and Damian Marley, Corn, who dropped out here, part of the way through, they dropped out in Columbus. Well,
3: so so I have a funny story. Um, my wife's cousins, my wife's cousin's wife, who just left her house two hours ago when I told her I was doing this episode. Um, I had to recall her memory, but she's an emergency room doctor at Ohio State Hospitals, and Monkey from um from Corn. Was not able to play that show because he ended up having um i think meningitis she said so he he got he got to the venue and was sick and they rushed him off to the hospital and she i remember like the next day she was like there was some guy in a band i don't know what his name like his name's monkey or something like that and i'm like oh that's why he wasn't on stage with corn so i think I, I don't know if they ended the tour here but um he was in the hospital in Columbus, Ohio.
2: Um, that's where they ended the tour and that's where Failure took over. Uh, they were on the side stage and they were bumped up to the main stage to cover oh. for Corn. For
3: so I actually went, I totally forgot, I did go to this year, but by that point, you know, Polaris Amphitheater was right, not right up the street, but you know, at a 10 to 15 minute drive from my house. I had a free ticket and like I went literally to see Jeremy Toback play on the second stage. Jeremy Toback, name may ring a bell. He was in yep. Brad yep. In Satchel. Um but you know like musically he like I hate to say it, but he's he sort of had he was sort of Dave Matthews without the jam band sound, if that makes sense. He just mm-hmm. was like just a Again, Jeremy Toback on the Lollapalooza stage just doesn't make any sense to me. But I had a free ticket and I went I, I went to go see him. I don't think I stuck around to see I I don't remember any of those other bands. I just had to Google when Jeremy Toback was on, and that's how I realized that I went to that year, but that's the only memory I have of that year.
1: In retrospect, I do kind of wish I had gone just so I could have been there for Snoop Dogg set in case somebody behind me asked why he was ripping off or um, if P-Funk
2: was aware that he was taking their music. It would have been a nice, <laughs> would have been a nice um, circular. Um, I mentioned failure was on the side stage for part of it. Uh, in addition to the side stage, again, these are some interesting... Bands. Well, Beck was on the side stage. Eels. Summer Camp. You mentioned Jeremy Tobach. Uh, Dr. Afghan was on, but then dropped out. Artificial Joy Club. Radish. Old 97s. Inch. Porno for Pyros. Welcome back, Perry Pharrell. Um, Demolition Doll Rods. Molly Maguire. Orbit. Skeleton Key. Lost Boys with a Z. The Pugs and Agnes Gooch. Um, Is the Pug spelled with a Z2? No. No, it's not.
0: So Beck goes from main stage to side stage the year later?
2: That's, that
1: seems more like, that's got to be more of like a pop in places sort of situation. Yeah, I maybe, think, maybe, I think maybe it was. Maybe he was in between like the Party Beck album and the Serious Beck album at the time, and he was playing Serious Beck music, but it, yeah. I, I don't. I have a hard time thinking he played the side stage on a regular basis on that tour, unless he was doing something really out of the ordinary and workshopping stuff.
2: So Liam Howlett of the Prodigy was not happy with this tour. He said, the worst thing was the venues. They were all seated. Obviously people don't sit to watch the Prodigy, but the security people were making them sit down. You You had all expensive seats in front and the mosh pit at the back. It was all wrong. So they're still doing those those sheds that you guys are talking about, where there, there's seats up front and then there's grass behind that. Which he's right. Like in the UK, that's not where Prodigy and Orbital and the Orb and Tricky and those guys are playing. It's completely reversed. Uh, if if there's any seats at all. So um, interesting choice. This went on for a while. Too. This was a long. We're from June twenty fifth to August sixteenth, it's a lot of shows, in comparison to some of the previous years. But they got to get that money's worth. Got to get as many. Uh, got to get as many shows booked, and then of course this was the end of Lollapalooza. There was no ninety eight through two thousand two. Um, shows next one would be in two thousand three, which my wife went to. Uh, and then it was canceled in 2004 due to low ticket sales. Can you imagine that Lollapalooza not happening because of low ticket sales? Mm-hmm. And then it comes back as the destination uh, concert in Grant Park. But uh, just just so we, we can we can close the book on this, the, the 2003 one it was Jane's Addiction was back. With Audio Slave, Incubus, Queens of the Stone Age for part of it, and per- A Perfect Circle for part of it. With Jurassic 5, The Donnas, Rooney, The Distillers. And on the side stage, you had Steve-O, Burning Brides, Caven Kings of Leon, 30 Seconds to Mars, The Music, Mondo Gel- Generator, uh, The Mooney Suzuki, Boys Set Fire, Billy Talent, Campfire Girls, Shihad as Pacifier, <laughs> uh, and some other bands. And then the 2004 one that got canceled The Pixies, Morrissey, PJ Harvey, Sonic Youth, The Killers, Wilco, The Flaming Lips, The Von Bondies, Modest Mouse, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, Danger Mouse, The Polyphonic Spree, Broken Social Scene, The Dotsons, The Secret Machines, Elbow, Wheat.
1: That's a pretty good lineup. Eventually they all end up getting booked on Lollapalooza. So it's not a one year, but they get recycled and most of them quite a few times.
2: (laughs) Right. Right.
4: Nobody missed their chance. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a monster year though. People that that is needed to happen. I'm sorry. That's crazy.
0: And, uh, but obviously the business is changing here where they're not able to figure out like how to make this work. traveling because what 2005 they they just put a planet right so interesting that they can't work anymore apparently
2: yeah um so let me ask you guys um we mentioned that there were other festivals in in the 90s uh, with regards, but those were more genre specific. You had Lilith Fair, you had the Warp Tour, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The Horde, Horde, Ozfest. Each everything got segregated after after Lollapalooza kicks off for the first couple of years.
3: Well, well, mad too.
2: Yep. And then everything in the two thousands becomes destination based with Bonnaroo and. um the Lollapalooza in Chicago. Coachella. And Coachella. Austin. Um, yep. So, what's your preference? Do you like the Destination Festival? Or do you like the touring festival?
3: So, I will say that I had a lot of trepidation with the, the, the Destination Festival festival the only reason i went in 2011 was because done waiting got offered a free pass and uh duffy had moved to new york at that point and offered it to me and i was like man i don't want to go i don't want to i don't want to go to a destination festival like i don't want to drive to chicago and there's like 800 bands i'm I'm really not interested and i will tell you i had a blast it was so much fun um and i and i went into it like thinking that it was going to be awful just when you when you have a lineup that has like every single band you can think of on it, to me, it's almost, it takes away from what the whole Lollapalooze idea was, you know? Um, but I'm telling you, I I had such
0: a good time. I was upset when I didn't get a pass the next year. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think because it was plant, you know, they, it was planted in one place so there was just, it was run better and just easier to have a good time out. Did I have, did that factor in? Um, that's a good question
3: i i I think I expected there to be a billion fans, and there were, yeah, but but hmm, the uh, the bands I wanted to see didn't have always have the biggest crowds, you know, so I could kind of I could work my way around. There's always multiple things happening sort of at the same time. So if one show had too many people, I felt like it was too big and too like I would just go to the the next stage. So it was a good kind of roving festival. I got a chance to see a lot of stuff by walking, around. I put in thousand, 10 thousands of steps every day, just going from stage to stage.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I don't know if you can really compare the traveling fest to the destination fest because once you land in Chicago, you all, all of a sudden get like a solid infrastructure that you can build up over two weeks so that you end up having a, like a really solid mini, mini city within the city that everybody can traverse. And while the first couple years, like 2005, probably through like 2010 or 11, the booking still seemed very much along the lines of, you know, let's book the cool bands that we like kind of, but let's keep, let's start to bring in more of the mainstream stuff because we have three days of music to fill up. And I think for the first couple of years, again, it kind of follows that Lollapalooza trajectory of the booking got better and better and better, then kind of plateaued. And now what it is, is... Kind of what Kip was describing, you know, which, sorry, not Chip, <laughs> Kip. <laughs> I'm obviously thinking of my guitarist, Chip. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but you go to the festival and it's, it is It is now not a music festival. It is an experiential festival. You go there to spend your day with friends, drinking wine in the like shaded groves or camping out at one end of Grant Park or the other, or just wandering around and catching like parts of certain bands. Um, which I think is totally fine and and a lovely thing. It's gotten to the point now, though, where I'm starting to feel like this year's bill, for instance, is stretched to four days. There's no reason to have four days for Lollapalooza. And even less reason when that bill literally you could fit all the really good bands into a single afternoon in half the park. And there's so much filler that I'm not even sure that, you know, wandering the park and just... I don't know how much mu- new music there is to discover on that bill because I don't know how much new music is really good on that bill. And it's just there to kind of fill as placeholders. But again, if, if you're describing two different things, the original Lollapalooza was, you know, a, a brief shining moment where supposedly the underground rose to the top and was like popular in the world and we were unused to it. Nowadays, Lollapalooza is a place where a thousand, a hundred thousand people a day go to walk around, have a nice time, see each other, travel in and everything else is pretty secondary. As long as they're providing a nice experience, they're going to show up.
0: Well, it's not like forget. I think you just made a key point there. The The original was, Hey, we're going to bring the underground to your town. And for 20, for 20 bucks or whatever the ticket price was, you can come see it. So it's super accessible. There's nothing accessible about these destination shows. I mean, they're expensive. If you don't live in Chicago, right? You're paying for flights, hotels, like, not every kid can go one to one of these shows. It is a, you know, it's like glamping for rock and roll. (laughs) So it's a totally different, I'm sure economically it's a lot, you know, more lucrative and and better idea.
1: And there are still destination festivals that are worth going to and are being adventurous to booking, but I just, and that, that are music focused. I'm just not so positive. Lollapalooza is that kind
2: of festival anymore and i and also how- want to point out just real quick uh for the 2019 festival which was the last one that took place because there was no 2020 the stage names you had on the t-mobile stage Arietta grande 21 pilots childish gambino the strokes on the bud light stage you had the chain smokers uh tame impala on the tito's handmade vodka stage You had uh, Chevelle and uh, some other bands on the American Eagle stage, uh, the BMI stage and the VIP Lola Lounge. Seems like it might have drifted away from the uh, (laughs) because, oh, and back when you went, Jay or Chip in 2011, there was the they had the Bud Light stage. You also had the Sony stage, the BMI stage, the Google Plus stage, the PlayStation stage.
3: Yeah. I mean, Tim, you mentioned it at the beginning, right? Is that in, in the last five, 10 years, there are so many festivals and, and they're no longer exclusive. Like the same bands will play Lollapalooza that will also play the Louder Than Life festival that will play Sonic Temple festival that will play Austin city limits and Coachella. I mean, it's, there's nothing all that special anymore about Lollapalooza because like I said, all those bands are playing, I, I think they're playing, maybe they're not, but in my mind, Lollapalooza doesn't have a, like the brand is, the brand that I remember is is long gone. And now it's just another festival. And maybe those bands sign exclusively to Lollapalooza, but all the other festivals have bands that are kind of playing the same thing. So they all kind of run into the, in my head, they're, they're the same thing. It's nothing, there's nothing unique about Lollapalooza. Anyway. You
1: know, there is something we have tracked in Chicago over the, since it started here, we call it the Perimeter. Um, And it's how many times you see Perry Farrell at Lollapalooza each year. And in 2005, up through, you know, just a couple years ago, you literally could not turn around without running into Perry Farrell or talking to Perry Farrell or, you know, whether you're backstage or out in the crowd, he seemed to be everywhere all the time. And then maybe five or six years ago, you started to notice he was around less and less. And I think a couple years ago, he actually basically said he was no longer interested in Lollapalooza because it wasn't playing music he liked, which is why I find it interesting when he's suddenly back and um, promoting it again. So maybe sometime, somewhere down the line, he hopes to get more involved, but it has been a good way to kind of gauge his involvement. When he's when you don't see him on the grounds at all, you know that he is disconnected and it, 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 it comes through in the ethos, I feel.
2: You, know, you feel the vibe. So speaking of that Radius thing, Did you know that it was actually there was an antitrust investigation uh, launched into Lollapalooza in 2010 um, because the Lollapalooza clause was you could not play up to six months prior within 300 miles of Chicago or three months after. So there's a nine month window where you couldn't play, which includes Detroit, Indianapolis or Milwaukee in that range. Um, Basically, you have to avoid the Midwest. If you if you want to play, that I
3: think that's pretty standard though, right? Because Rock and the Range did the same thing.
2: I think it was the problem with
1: Lollapalooza was that because Chicago is such a huge market, um, the venues in town were getting completely slammed and locked out. It's not even that you couldn't see them within you know a hundred mile radius of Chicago. You couldn't see bands in Chicago if you didn't see them at Lollapalooza, which you know for the Metro and the Empty Bottle and Lincoln Hall, that's not cool. Um, I do think cause... that they have hundred percent backed off on the radius clause i have not heard any acts ever complain about it and in chicago they clearly made nice with the venues because they all get the after shows so they all get the super premium bands during that week and uh, you do see other bands coming in you know within three to three months before or after so i i definitely don't think the clause is in effect but when it was it was one of those things that was a huge topic of conversation in chicago for certain because nobody literally- liked it and everybody thought it was completely unfair
3: and literally there there was probably like 100, 200, 300 bands. So that took away 300 bands from playing in Chicago that summer.
1: And literally it covered like the area where they would be coming through on their way down to South by Southwest through October, which is the other like huge touring. Like they, they literally were swallowing up the, the biggest touring times of the year for any independent shows. So, yep. so yeah, it, it sucked at the time, but I, I think it has gone by the
2: wayside. Gotcha. I noticed so, uh, that. There's Question a Perry's pre- stage. Is it? Does is that the stage that Perry gets to pick the bands?
1: So originally it was. It was. It started off as a like small covered enclosure off to the side in a grassy area where the like the DJs would play. And I think the idea was that because Perry was into electronic music at the time, he was kind of picking the DJs. He would always show up into a set at some point. Um, and then Perry's stage got bigger and bigger, and his EDM got more and more popular. It now is something that is the size of an open airplane hangar that takes up a huge quadrant of the park. And it's literally, you know, anytime you just want to go and see a bunch of goofiness, you could just walk over there and see clouds of dust as thousands of kids dance around and just are acting like complete fools. But I mean, (laughs) is that what you're supposed to do when you're like 18 years old and listen to EDM? So it it, it has been funny to see fairies go from like a teeny tiny little tent to just one of the biggest things in the park. And one of the few stages that actually does have sound bleed issues.
3: <laughs> so, Jim, I've, I've never been to Riot Fest, but to me, Riot Fest seems like it's trying to carry on the earlier Lollapalooza traditions. I mean, maybe the band maybe the bands are a little bit more similar, like there's not as much diversity, but I don't know. I, I was, Those lineups always impress me way more than a Lollapalooza lineup does.
1: Because Riot Fest is 100% driven by what the folks who run Riot Fest are fans of. So that comes through in the booking, and I think that's why you... Yes, they seem to go towards a certain genre, you know, of kind of whatever you want to call it, like the sentimental or, you know, bringing up some of the some of the bands from that we grew up on or that other people hadn't seen. But they also bring in a ton of newer bands. So of all the festivals, Riot Fest is the closest one to what the original Lollapalooza was trying to be as far as building a community and creating a bill that that the promoters enjoy. And because they enjoy it, it, it comes through to the fans and the early Lollapaloozas did that and you could feel it.
2: Yeah, I can tell because I'm looking at the Riot Fest lineup for this year and it's Nine Inch Nails, the Smashing Pumpkins, Living Color. I mean, they just went back to the lineups and they said, who can we grab? Uh, They've got the Pixies and L7. I don't know if L7 actually played any of the there, but uh, Taking Back Sunday, Coheed and Cumbria.
1: Faith No More and Mr. Bungle, which I really was hoping they were going to book him at the same time as a joke just to see if people were going to freak out. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, if anybody could play between play in two bands at the exact same time in two different stages, it's Mike Patton. Like, I could see him pulling it off somehow. All right, let's... But yeah, I mean, again, like I said, it's it's the booking ethos of book what you like and the people will come. Apparently some of the bands that people have liked for a long time.
2: Well, that's true. All right, let's end this. Pick your favorite year of Lollapalooza that you attended. Your favorite year. Let's play the music, Jay, of the thinking music. Do, 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 do. <laughs> All right, it's over. Chip, what's your favorite year for Lollapalooza that you attended?
3: 92. Um, because, again... Um, I went from, I, know, I never had, I never wore spandex or teased my hair, but I went from that kind of scene to I did wear, I'm sure I wore a flannel shirt. And I, I definitely, in my article, I even talked about getting my Doc Martens muddy. And so that was like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, all the bands that I loved, being able to see all these bands in one place at one time. Um, it had to have been 92.
2: Johnny, what about you? What's your favorite year? Now, there's an echo in here because it's
4: 92 and I was wearing flannel and Doc Martens too. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm still recovering from the heat stroke I got that day.
2: <laughs> nice. And finally, Jim, what's your favorite year for Lollapalooza?
1: I'm sticking with the original years just because, like I said, two different beasts. And if I was going to talk Chicago, the best set I saw in Chicago was Daft Punk when they did theirs. Um, but favorite year the original one would probably, I don't know, I might I might stick with 1991. 92 had better bands, but something about being there in 1991 there was, and being with all my college friends and again, that, that feeling of we finally got there. Like our music is finally being heard by people and other people are there was just something so invigorating about that time that it's, it's got to be the first one for me.
3: So Tim and Jay, since you guys didn't go, which of the originals would you, like, looking back, you can pick one of those to go back in time to go to, which one would you go to?
1: Oh, clearly 1996 and 1997,
2: they'd be a both. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's tough. I th- I think 94, I would be really interested in going back to, I like so much of that music. Um, I would never have left the, the main stage. <laughs> to be quite honest like every band on the main stage is somebody that i would want to see um although 92 has a really great main stage as well i'm not a huge ministry fan and i i don't really like red hot chili pepper so that's it's not as big a draw for me and the, just the, the side stage as well for 94 is just really good as well um so yeah i might go with 94 what about you jay
0: Well, I was trying to go through some of the side stages to see if there was a maybe a year that had a bunch of bands. Um, Like I'm seeing Hum played side stage in 95. Shutter to Think would have been awesome to see. But I mean, based on the main stage, probably 92 or three. I think three, I would have loved to see Dinosaur Jr. and uh, Tool and Alice in Chains. And the side stage is, is pretty interesting too. But it seems like 92 is maybe the sweet spot where you're like early enough in it. Those bands are that are on the main stage are all breaking at that moment. And I'm sure that would have been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah.
4: And you know what? To put a bow on it, Lollapalooza was birthed the moment that Perry Farrell witnessed, uh, I believe it was a Glastonbury audience singing along to... Pixies debaser in 1990, so that's where you know he got the original idea for it, thinking that the U.S. had nothing resembling this kind of festival mm. atmosphere. So it's just nice to kind of to think about where it all came from in the beginning.
0: Yeah,
4: the
1: Pixies can be blamed for Lollapalooza and Nirvana. Okay, cool. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: nice. one two birds
4: with one stone.
1: I shouldn't say blamed. Clearly, I love both.
2: <laughs> right. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us, talking about your... I'm glad you still have these memories. Uh, if we wait too long, you'll be, uh, you know, might not might not be able to recall them so well. So we got to get these cataloged uh, as soon as possible. And um, we'll be hit you, hitting you up for your Horde Tour experiences next. Uh, look forward to that. But I uh, want to thank our folks at, the, at uh, Patreon who commented on this episode or uh, on this, uh, this poll, Marissa Bucksbaum, Ian McIver, David Gorgos, Jeff Gentis, uh, Johnny Hooper, and Darren Lehman for all talking uh, about this roundtable. And of course, if you'd like to join us at Patreon, you can just go to digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find the Dig Me Out Union link. You can also sign up for our box newsletter at digmeoutpodcast.com where you get it delivered every month or every, excuse me, every week to your email inbox, reviews of new music and our release calendar for music, books and movies. And you can leave some positive feedback over at Apple Podcasts. So, for Chip, for Johnny, for Jim, for Jay, for Tim, we're out. Jay and I will be back next week with another episode. Dig Me Out.